Welcome to Pazina Perspectives, brought to you by Pazina Investment Management, a global value manager known for our commitment to fundamental research and disciplined value investing. On today's episode, Portfolio Manager Miklos Vassarelli and Co-Chief Investment Officer John Getz discuss the current opportunity in Europe for value investors. Miklos, John, thank you for joining me and welcome to the podcast. Now, you're both members of the portfolio management team of our Pazina European Focus Value Strategy. John, if you don't mind, I'm going to kick this off with you. How are you feeling about the opportunity in Europe right now? Yeah, we're pretty excited about Europe. I mean, if you if you stand back and, and, and look at the European opportunity today from a global perspective, what you'll see is relative to buying cash flow in businesses elsewhere around the world, this is as cheap as it gets in Europe relative to other investment opportunities. You can see that a number of ways. One is that what you're paying uh, for future earnings, and I'm talking about one year out forecast now, kind of a short-term forecast from analysts, what you're seeing is you're paying a record low multiple, you know, in the seven times range. Uh, now, obviously, these estimates are going to come down because we're going into recession. We, we certainly understand that. But in terms of a starting point, uh, it's pretty doggone cheap. And when you think about it relative to other regions in the world, normally you would say that earnings multiples in, in, in emerging markets, because of the risks, I mean, certainly Russia was in emerging markets, so there is risk in emerging markets. Normally that multiple is the lowest uh, around the world. And actually, Europe now has eclipsed that. They have a slightly lower multiple uh, for, for earnings than even emerging markets. Uh, Japan is always relatively cheap. We invest in Japan as well. Uh, and, and Europe's slightly cheaper than Japan as well. So let's just say Europe has established itself as, as a good hunting ground for bargains. Now, we need to pick out good companies that are selling at ridiculously low prices. So we have to do uh, specific uh, investment ideas. Uh, and, and what's intriguing about that today, uh, in, in, in our opinion, is that some of these businesses aren't even primarily European. Uh, some of the companies you own in the portfolio, we'll talk about a few later, but you know they have more than 60% of their revenues outside of Europe. But because they're traded as a European company, they get you in this bargain land uh, that we're talking about. So it's a pretty exciting opportunity in Europe. So 2022, to say the least, has been a volatile year. John, you've been doing this a long time. How would you characterize the sell-off we've seen? Well, interestingly, I would say as an investor, probably like all the investors that might be listening, we really don't like sell-offs because obviously everyone's looking at losses and and, and they're hard to take. Uh, it's been hard to avoid losses this year, uh, no matter what the strategy uh, what I will say is, you know, it's not the first crisis. Uh, certainly in our, I think of it now as relatively short firm lifetime of 27 years, I think of, you know, the dot-com era for value being particularly bad for value. Uh, certainly the GFC, global financial crisis, was very, very difficult. Uh, certainly COVID was actually one of the weirdest downturns ever because never before have we faced kind of like a, a global bloodbath of, of, I call it, revenue seizure for businesses all over the world. Um, and, and now we have what I, what I think is, is an interesting crisis in the sense that 
Uh, it's really has a couple of agents to it. Uh, we'll talk about those. But when I step back and I look really long term, I realize that there have been some really severe recessions along the way. Uh, think about the interest rate crisis way back in the early 80s, uh, fighting inflation, which is, looks a little bit more like what we're doing today. Uh, really severe recession back in the early 1980s. So there's been lots of difficult periods in, in world history. I think this one is interesting because clearly we've generated some fear in Europe, but really China has been in a tough spot uh, really since COVID because they're still dealing with the shutdown effects of COVID. So there's plenty of issues uh, in, in the world. I know we're going to feature Europe here a little bit, but I think the global backdrop is one of huge uncertainty. Uh, the good news is uh, these periods of uncertainty always create opportunities, and that's our job, is to find the best opportunities in Europe, given the bloodbath in, in valuation so far. So in, in value investing, <laughs> there's always a, a, a silver lining in the pain that we feel, because like I said, we're experiencing losses as many people are, and that really, really hurts. Miklos, do you have anything to add to that about the current downturn and specifically what you're seeing in Europe? When you think about downturns, you know, whether it's COVID or, or this most recent downturn, they're all different, but they also share several characteristics. You know, I think first, they're extremely painful in the near term. Uh, but secondly, you know, as value investors, you know, these downturns, you know, present great opportunities and the opportunities that, that we wait for. And really that opportunity is the, the chance to buy, you know, good businesses selling at cheap prices uh, due to all the fear and uncertainty in the markets. And, you know, as John alluded to, you know, globally, you know, 2022 has been a very challenging year for all markets. You know, stubbornly high inflations led to, you know, rapid increases in interest rates, which have all raised fears of a recession. And, you know, all markets have suffered, but in particular, I think Europe's really suffered the most. So not only is Europe dealing with, you know, higher inflation and interest rates, uh, but Europe's dealing with, you know, the land war in Ukraine, you know, soaring energy prices, you know, with the potential for shortages or, or even rationing, you know, over the winter and going into next year. And then, you know, most recently, even, you know, some questionable fiscal policies uh, coming out of the UK. Um, and all this for uncertainty, you know, has been, you know, reflected in the markets, you know, European value companies are trading at, you know, seven times forward earnings. And this is kind of the lowest levels we've seen since in the past 15 years, you know, the lowest levels we've seen since the global financial crisis, you know, valuation levels that are cheaper than what we saw in other times of great pain, you know, whether it was the Eurozone crisis or, or more recently, you know, the downturn that we experienced with COVID. And, you know, history would suggest, and it's not easy, and uh, that's why we're in this business, is that when there is, you know, peak fear and uncertainty in the market, it's often the, the best time to invest. So, you know, if you think back to, to the GFC um, in March 2009, you weren't sure if the financial system was going to collapse or not. And that actually turned out to be a great time to buy. Or, you know, more recently, you know, April 2020, in the COVID downturn, you know, we weren't sure if we'd be allowed to, you know, leave our houses again. Uh, but then that turned out to be a great time to buy. So, you know, obviously we don't know how bad things will get in Europe 
or you know when when the bottom will be but it does seem like there is a lot of fear in the markets and you know not surprisingly you know we're running towards that fear and Europe really does stand out as particularly attractive to us at this moment yeah just picking up on that Europe point uh we do travel around the world and visit the companies that we that we uh, invest in in our researching and I think it goes without saying that our trips to Europe, we've, we've really seen that pessimism firsthand in talking to the companies, most of them planning on a severe recession, kind of hunkering down, having lowered expectations themselves. Not that we know that expectations are already as low as they might get, but I think there's a lot of pessimism in Europe, uh, particularly you know at this moment. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. So you know, if you look at European stocks and where they've traded down to, um, it's tra- they're trading down to points that are implying a really severe recession in Europe. And, you know, with the exception of some kind of a, a couple of companies that are really on the front lines of the, the energy crisis, and really what I'm talking about are, you know, utilities or materials companies, you know, broadly speaking, European companies have yet to see any material signs of financial or operating performance deterioration. You know, all of this is not to say that Europe won't enter a a severe recession and that earnings won't collapse. But what we are saying is that, you know, the market's already pricing in to a certain degree that we are going to enter into a severe recession. So in the event that we don't enter a recession or that the recession ends up being a lot milder than the market expects, you know, these stocks look incredibly cheap. But, you know, we don't know and we don't know how bad things could get. And uh, even if things do get bad, you know, that's where selectivity and kind of doing the fundamental work and analysis on individual companies really matters because uh, we want to make sure that we own the right companies and those companies have you know strong balance sheets and good quality franchises, so that means that they can survive the downturn, and also the the strength of those franchises means that you know even in certain instances any sort of downturn um, is an opportunity for those companies because they can actually take advantage of the downturn to to pick up share and emerge from any downturn in a stronger position. So um, you know with European value stocks trading at about seven times normal earnings. And as I said, kind of the, the lowest levels we've seen since the global financial crisis, um, you know, it, it really is like, does this environment feel like the GFC or does it not? So, you know, I was in the markets and, you know, I worked on Wall Street during the GFC, but I wasn't a portfolio manager on our European strategy. So, you know, I lived it and breathed it a certain way, but probably not to the same extent as you did, John. So really the question I have for you is, you know, how does Europe feel today relative to what you saw, you know, pre and during the, the GFC? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, the GFC uh, was interesting in the sense that if your banking system fails, it affects every single company because clearly what you're worried about is a seizure in transactions, seizure in money flows, et cetera. So in this, this time, since it's more about costs of energy, more about demand falling because consumers don't have the purchasing power because so much money is getting siphoned off to energy. It looks more like uh, a recession that doesn't have, I'll call it, existential questions. I know that certain debt spreads are widening out and there's always risk. 
and what we need to do in, even though we're in the deep value space and that means different things to different people, what it means to us is that selectivity, as you said, Miklos is key. Uh, and that's the way it always is in, in these dark periods to buy uh, well-positioned businesses that will get to the other side of whatever the problem is. And, and I like to add, maybe even gain a little market share on the journey because of the strength of, of their company. Uh, so, you know, I think we're interested in companies uh, that are that are able to get through the pain. Uh, you already said it, Nicholas, the pain is rising interest rates, incredibly high, uh, you know, energy prices in Europe uh, because of the shutdown of the Gazprom uh, pipeline, uh, that we need to look at these situations and make sure the companies have the wherewithal or maybe a slight advantage, actually, relative to some of the competitors uh, in in this situation. That's our our job. So so clearly, your point is that everything's priced inexpensively, and if we can take a few good rifle shots, you know, at some uh, at some businesses, we can come out uh, ahead after this crisis. Thanks, John. Speaking of those rifle shots. I do want to thank you both for the historical context. I I think it's really important that we get the lay of the land and understand the current situation in Europe. But I want to transition now and talk just a little bit about some of the specific European companies that you're most interested in. We've been adding to, you know, uh, European exposure in our global and international products because Europe does seem to be exceptionally cheap. But I think where we go first is let's go to the European portfolio and, and talk about what we're seeing there and what we're excited about in some of those. So, so Miklos, why don't you kick us off on, on that? Miklos, I would love to start by hearing a bit about Randstad, which is the highlighted holding in our newsletter this quarter. Yeah, absolutely, Lisa. And yeah, I would I would just uh, emphasize that point that you know Randstad is our highlighted holding in our in our newsletter this this quarter. So you know I'll give you the uh, the Cliff Notes version of, of our thesis there, but I'd encourage you to take a look at our in depth write up, which will give you a little bit more detail. Um, so for those of you that aren't familiar with Randstad, uh, Randstad's actually the the world's largest temporary staffing company. So basically, you know, the business model of the company is they connect employees looking for temporary work with uh, employers who are looking for, you know, temporary employees, and uh, they make a margin, you know, on the on connecting those employees. So, you know, their business model is very much tied to the the performance um, of the and the current employment cycle. So, you know, just to um, kind of break it down. You know, things are good for Randstad when unemployment rates are very low and, and the labor market's very tight uh, because, you know, it increases the value of the, the services they provide. And also Randstad earns a, a percentage of the, the, the temporary wages uh, paid to those employees. So obviously, you know, when wages are higher, that, that benefits uh, Randstad's financial performance. So, you know, understandably, given these fears of a recession, uh, Randstad has has traded down, and there's a lot of fear around Randstad. You know, particularly if the economy slows and uh, unemployment starts going up, you know that will lead to a, a weakening or a deterioration in you know Randstad's future financial performance. So, you know, I think those fears are justified, but I think what what the market isn't focusing on, and you know what we really see in Randstad, is you know the strength of the franchise. 
um, as well as the actions the company has taken to improve its business and market position, you know, over time. So, you know, on the downside and, you know, a theme we've always alluded to um, is, you know, we need to make sure that, you know, if a bad scenario does play out, you know, we want to be sure that our companies can weather that bad scenario and kind of make it through to the other side. So, you know, with rants that we think it very much, you know, meets that 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 criteria. The company has a strong balance sheet, basically almost no debt. And also the company benefits from, you know, a counter cyclical cash flow profile. And really what that means is, you know, actually when sales decline, uh, the company can liquidate its uh, working capital. So it actually generates cash um, in downturns. And that really provides a nice, some nice stability to the company and also kind of allows the company to continue to pay its dividend uh, during difficult times. And, you know, we've seen that play out time and time again. If you look at how the company performed during the global financial crisis or during COVID, um, it actually generated cash during those uh, more challenging times. I mean, I think longer term and, you know, the market has, hasn't really spent enough time focusing on is, you know, Randstad has really done a great job, you know, improving its competitive and market position. So, you know, for example, um, as the largest player in the temporary staffing market, and, you know, for some context, this is, you know, a very fragmented market, uh, but there are three larger players, Randstad, uh, ADECO, and Manpower Group. And basically, because of its scale, you know, Randstad's been able to invest heavily in its digital capabilities. And those digital capabilities, whether, you know, it's an app or uh, a very strong database or chatbots or, you know, just different ways to, to connect employees and employers, um, that's really helped them pick up share. And as I mentioned, this is a very fragmented market. So a lot of temporary staffing companies are kind of mom and pop operators who, you know, pre-pandemic would run a storefront. And they just can't compete with, you know, a larger player like Randstad. So we think that over time, and we've already seen signs of this, you know, this investment in digital kind of increases and improves their competitive position, which also drives, you know, will drive market share gains over time. Uh, the other thing that Randstad's done a really great job of is kind of growing what they call their in-house business. And what, what that means is it's really you know, in-house human resources. So, so what that means is, let's say you've got, you know, a large corporate um, that has a highly seasonal need for, for temporary workers. You know, it could be, you know, a manufacturing company that needs to produce a lot of widgets, you know, for the holiday season. Um, what they'll do is rather than having their own human resources department be responsible for hiring and then kind of letting go of those employees, They'll actually just have, you know, outsource all of that to, to Randstad. So Randstad will literally act as this company's um, HR function. And, uh, you know, that creates great stickiness, you know, improves efficiency. And, you know, over time, that's a you know, hard relationship for that, that corporate to, to get rid of. So um, we think, you know, both the investments in digital and adding these in-house capabilities have really created a, a strong moat for Randstad that should help facilitate it. Uh, and help it continue to pick up share. And in a downturn, we believe it will pick up share. Um, the other thing I'll say, and this is kind of a theme, whether it's with Michelin or, or some of the other companies we own in Europe, is you know I think they're you know right now in the market, Europe 
uh, for lack of a better way of saying it, is a little bit of a, a dirty word. So uh, we're seeing a lot of companies out there get penalized because they're European or European domiciled, when in fact, you know, Europe is, you know, a central hub in the global economy. So actually, a lot of European companies are more global in nature. So, you know, Randstad is a is a European company, but I'd actually note that about thirty five percent of its earnings actually come from markets outside of Europe. And um, you know, Michelin, for example, I think sixty percent of their earnings come from you know markets outside of Europe. So. Um, these are technically European companies, and they've been penalized for that. But I do want to highlight that they're also global in nature. So, you know, just going back to Rants, that you know, we think this is a great opportunity to to be buying and adding to our position in Rants that with the stock trading at you know less than seven times um, earnings. Thanks, Miklos. You know, I really knew very little about Randstad before we wrote about it, but it's it's been really interesting uh, learning about it. Seems like an exciting opportunity for us. John, I do want to kick this back over to you. I want to talk a bit about another company the Miklos just brought up, Michelin. It was one of our highlighted holdings a few quarters ago. Can you just give us a brief update? Yeah, you know, when you say... Michelin, uh, most people know it's a tire company. Uh, and when you say tires and you're thinking about recession, you, you get nauseous. Uh, so I think, I think it's understandable. It is a cyclical business. Uh, the businesses that they participate in are both the auto tire business, truck tire business, uh, and then the off-highway heavy equipment, big mining trucks, et cetera. Uh, they happen to be a leader in, in each of these segments, actually. Uh, I'll talk a little bit more about what leadership means in a minute, but certainly the fear is understandable, right? You're facing uh, a fear of downturn in units. That's what happens. You know, you sell fewer tires when things are bleak. Uh, certainly COVID, when we stopped driving our cars, uh, people didn't need to buy replacement tires. So so that was a very uh, negative moment. So people fear the tire companies when we're going into recession because units typically decline. But on top of that, this time, we have rapidly rising raw materials, uh, both the synthetic and the natural rubber bits of a tire have gone up dramatically in price. Uh, and uh, the tire companies are having a hard time passing that all through because it's such a significant rise. So now you have fear of units and fear of margins because of uh, raw materials. So how would we think about a business like this? The key, The key is... Well, let's just figure out how this should transpire for Michelin. Uh, as I said earlier to some other people, I think what's interesting is if you do uh, the math, if you will, you know, on the dark periods of time in a business, you might find some interesting things. What we find interesting about Michelin is the fact that because uh, they're uh, mainly participating in premium tires in these segments, so that it would be the expensive or high value end of the range of passenger car tires, but also truck tires and off-road equipment, because they have premium technology in their tires, they collect premium prices. What that means is that if you were further down the commodity spectrum of tires, you'd be in worse shape because a higher percentage of your selling price is in raw materials. So actually, this downturn for Michelin as a premium leader is actually a little less severe than it is for the more commodity players. And therefore, everyone is forced 
to pass through price increases. None of the customers like it. And I wouldn't automatically call it pricing power, like we think of someone being able to price a product at any price they feel like it. This pricing uh, move in tires is required because otherwise many of the competitors will be underwater. Uh, so that's what you're seeing in terms of price increases. And that's shown up in the revenue this year. Revenue is actually up, uh, substantial units or not, but revenue is actually up because we need to charge more for tires. Uh, so I think you know Michelin has this enviable situation where they're well positioned for this downturn relative to competition. And on the other side of the crisis, they're well positioned for the longer run. And this is what we mean when we say we're trying to buy a good company selling at low prices is Michelin is a good company because I think they will weather this downturn better than many competitors. And in the long run, their uh, investment in R&D ahead of time, uh, and there's all sorts of R&D requirements in tires, believe it or not. Uh, certainly, there are environmental considerations like rolling resistance. There's the performance of the tire in wet, dry conditions. And last but not least, there's kind of the cosmetic, cosmetic aspects of low-profile tires in the passenger car market, all of which Michelin is a leader in. So you have to look at it as a brand that has substance uh, and pricing power in that sense. So longer term, the EV revolution is in their favor. They're, they're ahead on the EV revolution just because of the high demands for tires uh, for electric vehicles. So we like this situation where we get to buy uh, you know, a, a true leader in the long term at reduced prices because of fears of recession. And as we've been saying, we're paying uh, about six to seven times earnings power uh, in the longer term for, for this great franchise called Michelin. Thanks for that update, John. You know, I absolutely would have put myself in that camp of hearing Michelin, thinking tires, thinking can't be good in a recession. But it just goes to show you the the importance of the fundamental research we do, and it, it helps us find those value opportunities. John, I, I am going to pick on you again. Um, in thinking about Europe right now, particularly considering the situation with Russia, I think it's important that we talk a little bit about energy. Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting because in every point of pain in markets, one should always consider that there's gainers and losers. Uh, and, and obviously, if energy prices are high, there are probably some winners. Uh, certainly, the energy companies come to mind. We, we like, we've picked out uh, Shell, uh, as as an integrated oil company that we particularly like. So let's talk about why people uh, don't like energy, and, 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 and then I'll get into why we like Shell so much. Long term, long, long term, it's probably true that oil uh, is a declining resource and there is declining demand for oil. We wouldn't disagree with that. Uh, the key to any company that's going from one history to an unknown future is what are their transition plans. That's the word everyone uses now. What's the transition plan? Uh, we have that job. While our screening tool will tell us what the earnings look like in the history, the reality is for a company like Shell, we have to create an understanding of the future. So that must contain the idea that oil is a declining business, which we would have to put in our forecasts. So I just want to say that the issue is 
uh, and our desire to own Shell is really related to their transition plan, which we actually like. So let me explain, you know, why do we like uh, Shell's transition plan? Clearly, uh, there is a future world where renewables are a large percentage of the energy consumption in the world. Uh, that is a good long-term view, but in the transition to that, we're going to have massive declines in coal-fired power, not right now in Germany where they're starting coal plants back up, but in the long run, we're going to have declines in coal-generated uh, electricity and oil-generated uh, electricity. So in the transition, we have a growing need for natural gas. Uh, it isn't in decline. It's actually in a growth period. Shell uh, had been committed to both developing gas resources and trading uh, gas and the biggest player in the LNG markets. They had been investing in this going back a couple of decades. So the, be the, the truth is they're the best position company globally for rising natural gas and LNG trading. Uh, obviously, the invasion of Ukraine by Russia just highlighted exactly how risky you know, energy sources are and how much the electricity grids uh, around the world are, actually are dependent upon gas uh, for, for energy uh, generation. So we like Shell because they're trading at a, at a very, very inexpensive price because of these long-term existential fears when actually their transition plan uh, is really excellent uh, for the volatility in energy markets that we're going to be facing, certainly in the next five to 10 years, and that's getting proved out uh, as we sit here today. Uh, on top of that, we believe their, their net zero plan is also very prudent. Uh, there's a pace at which they get to renewables, ultimately hydrogen, uh, but that pace makes sense to us as fiduciaries of of investing uh, in, in, in these companies. Uh, so we're very excited about both the present environment for, for Shell and the longer term uh, transition plans at Shell. And here we're buying a company again, you know, at six times what we think its, its inherent earnings power is. So a pretty exciting holding uh, in Shell for us today. Thanks, John. You know, hearing about Shell's long-term transition plan and their net zero plans, it really does help me to understand why we're so excited about the opportunity. Now, Miklos, I want to shift from energy to financials and another company we're excited about. Can you fill us in a little bit on ING Group? You know, ING is a bank that we've added to this year and that we really like that we own across our global, our international and our, our European portfolios. So you know, ING, it's a high quality bank. They've got, you know, market leading positions in the Netherlands and Belgium. Um, they've got a very strong retail franchise, deposit franchise and, you know, digital offering. You know, they're kind of a, a leader in, you know, online apps and what have you. And really, the, the bank has traded off a lot this year on, you know, these fears weighing on these macro fears weighing on banks in the form of higher credit costs, but also specific to ING. Uh, they had a small Russia exposure. So when the war in Ukraine broke out, the, the stock traded down significantly. Um, and we, we took this as a good opportunity to add to the position. So, you know, the stock's extremely attractive. You know, we think they'll be a big beneficiary of higher interest rates from this um, strong deposit franchise that they have. We even think, you know, just the interest rate increases that we've seen at the ECB year to date 
um, you know, by my estimates, that could be a 20 to 30% increase in, in earnings. Uh, so that could really offset any co higher costs or credit costs. And then Russia, um, you know, our view is that the concerns are way overblown. You know, ING's Russia business was less than 1% of their loans and less than 1% of earnings. Um, and they've announced their intention to, to fully exit in that market and wind down the, those exposures. And then on the defensive side, you know, the group's very well capitalized. They have over 25% of their market capitalization and excess capital. So that's a good buffer. But also we think that, you know, that's a nice lever for returning capital to, to shareholders. And they've signaled that that's their intent. So, you know, overall, we think ING is an extremely cheap stock. You know, trades at 0.6 times tangible book value for a bank that we think can earn, you know, more than a double digit or double digit ROE, and uh, it trades at you know five times our normal earnings for for a market leader. So I think this is just you know one example of of a number of banks that we own across you know our European and other portfolios that we just think are really cheap, um, and at the cheapest levels we've seen since the global financial crisis that we're really excited about. Miklos, John, I want to thank you both again for joining me today and educating us about the value opportunity in Europe. Any final thoughts? You know, I think just kind of recapping, you know, we're really excited about Europe. Europe's trading at the, the cheapest levels we've seen in, in 15 years. And we think that the market's kind of indiscriminately punishing companies because they're European. So with the value lens in mind, uh, we think there's a, a great opportunity to get some good investments in, in the portfolio. Obviously, Europe's not lacking for controversy, but at Pazino, we try to understand that controversy and take advantage of it. And Europe's really on the front lines of the, the opportunity set that we see today. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of Pazina Perspectives. If you'd like to hear more, be sure to subscribe to this podcast. And for more insights on value investing, visit our website at www.pazina.com. That's www.pzena.com. You can also follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter. <laughs>